Good evening. Whoa, that's loud. <laughs> okay. Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, let's not skip anything. Let's just get into the word. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, Matthew chapter five. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand nice and high and uh, Dane and Jason will get you one. This is church. So, you know, having a Bible is, uh, is kind of essential. So we are going to be all over the Bible today, but mainly in Matthew chapter five. Um, one quick announcement for y'all before we get into the word. Um, you know, this, this ministry, uh, this Sunday night service, it's grown a little bit, slowly but surely. You know, we're, we're picking up um, some growth here. And we want to really minister to everyone on Sunday nights. You know, we, we want to minister to everyone from all walks of life. And, and we want to minister to families included. And, and so one thing that I want to uh, ask of you as a church body, um, there's one of you in here or maybe two of you that uh, feel called to children's ministry. Okay, and so if any of you feel called to minister to kids and and minister uh, to uh, God's little lambs, um, come talk to Jason and I. Uh, We are in need of somebody to do children's ministry on Sunday nights. That is something we're in lack of. So if if you feel called, this is no pressure. This is not like me, like guilt tripping you guys. If if one of you feels like, man, I really want to work with some kids and build the ministry myself, then, you know. Uh, come and see me, come see Jason, come see Dane, and we'll work that out. Okay? Amen. Okay, so Matthew chapter 5, we are going through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in chronological order. That is our series, and we are now in the portion uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going through the Beatitudes. Now, we learned that the Beatitudes um, are, are prescriptive, are actually descriptive before they're prescriptive, meaning this, that, that they're actually meant to describe a Christian rather than telling us what we ought to do. As Christians, okay? So, so basically, God is always concerned with the heart. Jesus was always concerned with the heart. And he's saying, a lot of the times we try to change our actions and hoping that our hearts will change. Uh, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, you change your heart first and your actions will flow out from that. Okay, so Jesus is very concerned about the heart. And we're going through heart issues here. And so we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 5, um, starting just at verse 1. We'll go through um, the Beatitudes until what we're going through now, so in seeing the multitudes, him being Jesus, he went up on a mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we're so stoked to go through your word tonight. Lord, I, I, I pray, God, that you would speak to everyone individually uh, tonight, Lord. Not only us as collectively as a church body, Lord, but you would also speak to each and every one of our hearts. You are a personal God, so speak to us personally. God, may I decrease, Lord. I pray that anything is said, that is said of me tonight, Lord, would be forgotten. Anything that needs to be said of you, Lord, would be uh, taken in, Lord, and remembered. And so we love you and we praise you in this time as we worship you through the study of your word in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. 
Beautiful. So last week we learned about blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall inherit uh, for, for theirs is the kingdom of God and blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And it was very odd to see that uh, blessed means happy. So, oh, how happy are those who are poor in spirit? Oh, how happy are those who mourn? And this seems counterintuitive. This seems like it just doesn't make sense. Blessed are those who mourn. You know, in our culture, this really doesn't make sense. But we learned last week that really, oh, how happy are those? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are those who really don't think little of themselves. We learn that humility isn't this self-pity, okay? But we learn that it's actually not thinking of yourself at all. It's not thinking low of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself. It's thinking of others and thinking of the things of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who recognize that they have nothing without God, but they have everything with God, okay? They have nothing without God, but with God they have everything, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We learned that there are many aspects of mourning, okay, but we focused on one, which is blessed are those who mourn over their sin. A lot of the times we think that Christianity is, and, and church in, in specific, is this place where perfect people congregate, right? And if... if that's the case. I don't want to be in church. You see, church is not uh, a golf club, okay? Uh, church is not a country club. Church is not a place where people that are all um, of the same mind and people who are all have everything together congregate. It's not that. It's, it's a place where broken people come to mourn their sin and then worship the God who has saved them from it, Okay? And so that's why we're here on Sunday nights. And then we see here, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, I want to look, before we get into righteousness, I want to look at meekness. Meekness, uh, many, we we think weakness, feebleness, lacking in strength, courage, or pursuit of honor. Uh, to be meek is to lay over in the face of hardship in your enemies and let them have victory over you. Uh, meekness, God blesses those who lay over and just give up. This is what we think meekness is many times. When we read about meekness, because we learned last week, I mean, Jesus uses words that aren't really in our common vernacular, right? Nobody, you don't describe your friends as poor in spirit, you know what I mean? Yeah, that, that, that just doesn't happen. I mean, maybe Wilson does, but he's weird. Okay. <laughs> and so, so we learned that nobody uses meekness. I love you, Wilson. Nobody, nobody uses the word meekness. Oh yeah. That guy, you know, he's full of meekness. You know, he's a pretty meek guy. <laughs> like, oh man, I, he's so cute. And then he's so meek too. You know, we, we don't, we don't say that. We, we don't use the word meekness. And so a lot of the times we just associate it with the word weakness, with the people who lay over and just let people uh, dominate over them. You know, that's a lot of the times our, our perspective of meekness, but, but this isn't so. And I would argue that in my opinion, at least meekness is the most admirable quality in a Christian. Out of all of these beatitudes, I, I, I would suggest that meekness is one of the most admirable to have. Those who are meek are truly blessed. And, and we learn that in the vocabulary of the ancient Greek language, that the meek person was not passive or easily pushed around. Rather, the main idea behind the word meek was strength under control. This is meekness, strength under control. I want you to imagine a stallion, okay? Horses are strong beings, aren't they? 
And we see many times that those who suffer from terrible horse accidents, uh, many people are paralyzed or broken limbs or brain damage because they were riding on a horse. The horse went rogue and they got bucked off. Horses are powerful animals and when not under control can do an incredible amount of damage. However, when a horse, when, when a stallion, a, a thoroughbred, is, is properly reined in and put into control, it can accomplish a lot of work. This is the concept of meekness. It is not weakness, rather it is strength under submission. Poole said it as this, The meek who can be angry but restrain their wrath and obedience to the will of God and will not be angry unless they can be angry and do not sin, nor will be easily provoked by others. This is meekness. Not easily provoked by others. Doesn't mean you don't get offended. It doesn't mean that you, that you don't have any anger, but it does mean that you reign in that anger. You have self-control because you recognize that there is a mission. As always, our ultimate example in anything is who? Jesus, right? My main man. Matthew chapter 26 says this in verses 52 through 54. And this is when, when Judas had betrayed Jesus and, and all the soldiers are coming in to capture Jesus. It's funny how they brought in uh, multiple soldiers. Okay. They brought in many, many men to go and capture Jesus, even though, you know, the dude's a carpenter, right? And, and, and so they bring in many men and Jesus is like, you don't take my Christ. And he pulled out his sword and he chopped off one of the soldier's ears. And Jesus is like, Peter, dude, calm down. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And he says this, but Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then? Could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? This whole concept of meekness, Jesus was the, was the ultimate example. You see, because all these soldiers came to take Jesus and to crucify him, and they knew, Jesus knew that Jesus, he was going to be crucified. He knew that the soldiers were going to take him, they were going to beat him, they were going to flog him, they were going to pull out his beard, they were going to whip him until he was unrecognizable, and then nail him to the cross. He knew all of this. And Jesus said, if I wanted to, if it was God's will, I could pray to the Lord, and he would send 12 legions of angels to come down and slaughter all of these men. But he didn't. Jesus had all of this power. I, I think sometimes we, we really don't recognize how much power God incarnate actually had. He had the ability to summon angels to come to his aid. But he had a mission. He knew that he had to walk with that cross. He had to be nailed to that cross. And God would then put on the entire wrath of mankind on his shoulders. Jesus could have used his power to destroy all of the enemies of God, but he didn't. He refrained. He showed meekness. And he used that power to go to the cross, to take on that sin, and to rise again on the third day. Submission to God with the purpose of waging war for the restoration of this earth. That is how I describe meekness. I'll say it again. Submission to God with the purpose of waging war for the restoration of mankind.
That is meekness. You see, meekness, it is how we inherit responsibility from God. And and this is why Jesus says, blessed are the meek for, for they shall inherit the earth. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, I had only to look upon it, all as the sun shone upon it, and went to look up to heaven and say, my father, this is all thine, and therefore it is all mine. For I am an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. So in a sense, the meek-spirited man inherits the whole earth. Meaning this, those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have said, Christ, I, I, I want you into my life. Christ, I want to be a part of your inheritance. Christ, I want to be a part of your kingdom. And I want to share in the adoption. I want to share and be a child of God. What happens is because the entire earth is Christ, we get to share in that inheritance. So those who are in Christ, the earth is ours. It's not ours to rule and dominate over. That's Christ. However, it says in Ephesians 1, 10 through 11, it says that in the dispensation, dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him. The earth... Is broken, right? We, we, we've talked about this. Not to be pessimistic, but, but this, this earth is, is shattered. It is fractured in a sense. The earth is Christ to redeem. Uh, the earth, it belongs to Christ to redeem, right? And, and, and us, being a part of Christ's plan, join in that mission of redemption. Okay? We join in that mission of redemption. Blessed are those who recognize that they have a mission here on earth. Blessed are those who recognize that that the earth is ours and take ownership over it. Take ownership over this world. Take ownership over mankind. Now, I'm not saying a godly ownership like it it, it is ours to rule over. I'm saying an ownership that is ours to help redeem and restore. Blessed are those who submit to God for the sake of the purpose. It is strength under control. Meek wasn't only uh, meant to describe workhorses, okay? I don't want to describe you guys as, as horses, okay? You know, you always, it always gets sketchy for a preacher to uh, really, you know, do heavily on the metaphors when it comes to animals, right? You know, you guys are sheep, you guys are donkeys sometimes, you guys are, you know, lions, whatever, you know, like we're so many different animals, it's crazy. Meekness was a cla- classic description of soldiers back in the day as well. In Jesus' time, meekness was also meant to describe soldiers. Uh, a soldier with no direction is a danger to those around him, is he not? Uh, a, a soldier without direction, because soldiers, uh, practically, uh, they're, they're trained to kill men, right? Evil men. But, but, but soldiers are trained to kill, correct? That is, that is their purpose, to kill. Now, they serve, there's other purposes in the military and obviously that, but, but soldiers are trained to kill. Am I wrong? No. Okay, soldiers are trained to kill, but a soldier who is unhinged is a danger. A soldier with no commanding officer, a soldier with no direction is dangerous. However, a soldier with a goal a soldier with conviction, power, and a drive, and with proper direction from commanding officers was the perfect machine for Israel and for us today and in Christianity. A soldier who has a goal, a soldier who has conviction, a soldier who knows that he is doing and he is fighting to protect his family and those he loves, 
That is a soldier you want in your military, right? And that is the same soldiers that, that God wants in his army. You see, Paul, uh, when he is speaking to Timothy, a young ch- uh, church leader in Ephesus, he, he says this, endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, but then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. He doesn't only describe us as soldiers, but he describes us Christians as athletes. He says, and athletes cannot win a prize unless they follow the rules. And hardworking farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labor. Thinking about what I'm saying, the Lord will help you understand all these things. Uh, Paul is, is describing us not only as soldiers under, under the authority of a commanding officer, but also as athletes under the authority of rules, right? No matter how talented an athlete is, if they don't submit to certain rules, they can't win, right? It doesn't matter how physically talented you are. If you're an athlete and you break the rules, there's no winning. There's no crown to be. uh, There's no trophy to be won. And the same goes with a Christian. You see, because I, I, I want to emphasize the fact that this book is very powerful. Okay? It's powerful in a good way, and it can be powerful in a bad way as well. We elevate the word of God because we know how powerful it is, but evil men also elevate the word of God because they know how powerful it is. Evil men all over the world have used this book to control people. Cult leaders. Dictators. Men, evil men all over the world have recognized the power and authority of the word of God. And they have not used it for the glory of the one who wrote it. Rather, they use it to further their own purpose. There's a lot of damage that can be done with this book. A lot of people can be hurt from this book. A lot of people that really know the word of God, but don't submit to the authority of God and the authority of church leadership. Those are the scary ones. Those are the scary ones. There's a lot of power in this book. Paul describes the way we ought to attain a goal, and that is submission to a certain authority. That is a power that we have because of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given us, but it has to be reined in somehow. And, and we rein it in by looking at the goal. Because a lot of the times, I, I'm going to be completely honest with you, a lot of the times I'm in church, or I'm reading my Bible, and I'm, I'm just going through the motions, and do you know what? To be completely transparent with all of you, uh, sometimes I just feel like, what's the point, you know? I, a lot of the times I'm in church, and I'm studying, I'm reading the Word of God, and I'm just like, I, I know a lot about the Bible, but man, I mean, what's the point of knowing it all? Really, what's the point in knowing this book, you know? Uh, what's the point of this? A lot of the times I'm just like, why am I here? What's the point of church? Why do you come on Sunday evenings? Why do we study? Why do we so adamantly go to church? Some of you are here for a second time today. Some of you are here for the third time today because you're nuts. Okay? You're just weird. (laughs) The thing is, what are we fighting for? You know? What's the goal Because if we come to church just to come to church, I mean, I love you guys being here, but like, what's, what's the point, you know? And so 
that's where we get to this subject of righteousness. Because when we look at the goal of the Christian life, because one thing I love about Christianity, one thing I love about the Bible is that, that hundreds and thousands and millions even of people all around the world will, will search their entire lives for their destiny, right? Uh, there's so many men and women all over. They, they just, and even in your own family or in your own friend group who just spend their entire life. What is the point of life? Why am I here? And what I love about Christ and what I love about the Bible is that it provides the answer. You see, many religions are like, okay, obey, 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 and one day it'll be okay. Okay? That, that's, that is the crux uh, of, that is the thrust of many religions where it's just follow these rules as hard as you can, endure this life, just kind of just squints through it, and then maybe one day you'll have rest. One thing I love about Christ is that he says, you are going to have rest one day. We're going to party. It's going to be sick in heaven. We're going to chill. It's going to be cool. But your life here on earth is going to be pretty awesome too with me. Okay. Your life here on earth is supposed to be freaking sweet. Okay. That's how it's supposed to be. And, and, and so what I love about Jesus is that he, he gives us that goal. And that goal is described here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, righteousness is the goal. What is righteousness? Very simple to describe it. Rightness. Righteousness, rightness. Okay? Righteousness can be described as the way things ought to be. Okay? The way things ought to be. That is righteousness. This pulpit. Whoa. That water bottle is not righteous. This pulpit is righteous. It is righteous because it is how it ought to be. It was built to hold my Bible. It was built to hold my notes. It was built for me to shake and not crumble. This pulpit is righteous. The chairs you are sitting on. Are they comfortable? Fairly. Yeah. Are, do they work? Are you sitting? They're not falling. They're not creaking. Yeah. Test it really quick. Uh-huh. Are, are, do they work? They're righteous. Okay. Your chairs are righteous. Righteous is simply, simply means the way things ought to be. That is literally how it is defined. The way things ought to be. The state in which things were meant and built. The purpose that they were supposed to serve. This world is unrighteous, is it not? As a result of sin. Many, many things in this world are unrighteous. I myself, without Christ, am unrighteous. I love how C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity brings up the funny phenomena that humans have this uncanny ability to point out when something is broken. He actually use it, uses it to describe the existence of a moral authority. He's saying, he's saying that, that those uh, who see, you know, we as mankind can see when something just maybe in a marriage or in a relationship with a friend or maybe even in our world, we can see sometimes we're just like, that's, kind of, that's not the way it's supposed to be, you know? Am I the only one on this where where I've seen something? I'm just like, that's kind of not how it's supposed to be. That seems a little unrighteous to me. I mean, domestic violence, unrighteous, right? 
not the way things are supposed to be, correct? Just give you an extreme <laughs> version. That's unrighteous. But C.S. Lewis describes this. He's saying, how could we know that something is unrighteous unless we first have this perspective that something is righteous in the first place? How, how can you know that a line is crooked unless you've seen a straight line, right? How can you know that a chair is broken if you have not seen what a chair is supposed to look like, right? And, and Paul, uh, a thousand years prior to C.S. Lewis, Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, he said, They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts, for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. You see, uh, Paul argues the fact that, that we have the law written in our hearts. Okay, God has given us a conscience. God has given us this, this moral standard. Almost in our hearts, whether we are saved or unsaved, whether we are Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, God has given us this thing in our hearts where we know what's right. Okay. For the most part, we, we know, we look at things, we look at murder, we look at rape. A lot of us ignore it. Sometimes evil men will do their best to ignore it, but we know in our hearts that that's not right. Correct. All cultures around the world will agree. That's not right. That's not right. The goal of the gospel is to make things right again. Okay. That is the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is to, by Jesus's righteousness, to make things right again. Take the unrighteous things and make them and mold them and shape them into the way things were supposed to be. That is righteousness. That is what Jesus wants to do in our lives. You see, what sin is broken, Christ repairs. That is what Christ came here for. To save mankind and save their souls and then to make things right again. Behold, I am making all things new, is what Jesus says. Behold, I am making all things new. One day when heaven meets earth, it'll all be right again. But until then, us as Christians are striving for that righteousness. We are hungering and thirsting after the rightness of this world. Marriage, business, family, school, friendships, all of these things with a hint of unrighteousness in them can be repaired and molded into what they were supposed to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the goal of Christianity. This is the goal of the gospel. You're wondering, why am I here? What is my goal? Many of you are wondering, what is my future? What am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? This thing, is, this thing isn't working out. This thing isn't working out. All of my, everything's falling apart. What is the goal? Why am I here? What is my destiny, so to speak? God has plainly said it. It is to know me and to make me known. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ has given us a goal for the rest of our lives. And we are to hunger after that goal. We are to hunger after that righteousness. Now, no, I'm, I'm going to confess that my hunger for righteousness, my hunger for Christ is often like uh, 
a hunger for a snack. I mean, how many of you eat because you're bored, right? This is America, so many of us, we, we eat because we're bored sometimes. You know, you're sitting around, you're just like, what's in the fridge, okay? And so, so many of us, we're, we're just like, ah, you know, I, I, I guess I can go for a grilled cheese or maybe, maybe some, you know, whatever, whatever. You know, you know what I mean? Some of us eat just because we're bored. Or some of us eat a snack in an anticipation of being hungry later, you know? A lot of us are like, I'm not really hungry now, but I may be hungry later, so I might as well eat a little now, you know? A lot of us diet. We're like, I'm only going to eat these certain things at this specific time. That's not what Jesus means. Hunger implies a need that is physically felt. Or a lack of something that is desperately wanted, right? Right? He's not talking about, ah, you know, I haven't been to church in a few weeks. Maybe I'll go. That's not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That is not the attribute of a Christian. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness feel this deep need inside of them to see things right again. Because when I have not eaten in days and I see the perfect bacon cheeseburger... I will do whatever in my power to attain that. The same is with us. We are to hunger and thirst and do whatever it takes to attain that righteousness. And Jesus says, that's cool that you're doing that because you know what? You're going to be filled. You're going to hunger again, and I'm going to fill you again. And it's just going to be a continual hunger and a continual satisfaction that will never end. Now, I wanna, uh, what is the difference between a Christian and a moralist? You see, because moralists have many Christian ideals, right? They follow the Ten Commandments and they follow the teachings of Jesus. A moralist is moral, seeks to do right. You see, a, a moralist seeks to be better than he was yesterday. A moralist, those who are moral and follow morals and be like, I, I, I'm a pretty meek guy. <laughs> I'm a pretty, uh, I'm pretty poor in spirit, you know. I, I think I can do better and I will. I'm going to try to do better. And then the moralist seeks to be better tomorrow than he was yesterday and then the next day. And then he says, well, if I can be as good as I can, then maybe the people around me will see me and they'll say, do you know what? I want to be a better person too. This is how the world functions. Sometimes it works. Most of the time it doesn't. The difference between a moralist and a Christian is a Christian seeks not to be better than they were yesterday, but seeks to be like Christ. Because if you set your own standard of righteousness, you say, do you know what? I want to be a little better than how I was yesterday. You really don't have to try that hard. And there's really no conviction because it's all based on what you want for yourself. However, a Christian seeks to be like Christ, not for their own sakes only, but for the sake of others. I want to be as much like Christ so my siblings and my friends and everyone around me, the junior hires and the kids that I minister to, all of you guys, I want to be like Christ because the people that I minister to, the people that I'm around every day need righteousness. And I'm not going to do so much as stuff to repair myself because Christ will work in me. I'm going to do all I can to repair this world that is broken and the relationships that I have shattered and the relationships that sin has shattered as well. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. How does this play out in real life? Because you all have jobs. You have real jobs. I don't have a real job. <laughs> Let's be honest. I would, you know, I love, I love what I do. But you, you guys have to go into the workforce. You guys have to go into your schools. You guys have to face the real world. How does this play out in real life? In the Bible, there's a name for God's kingdom here on earth. And it's called Zion. It's an epic name, isn't it? <laughs> Zion. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5 through 6, it says this, You also, as living stones, are be- being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Then it goes down in verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen generation. Think about that. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's talking to you, Christians. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and who is marvelous light. God has given us the distinct privilege of revealing what Zion looks like to the world. You are stones built on the cornerstone of Christ. The cornerstone was, was the stone, was the first stone that was laid that uh, an entire building would be based on. Christ is the cornerstone. We are stones built upon it. And as we build ourselves, and as Christ seeks to build us, what we do, we lay on top of each other. We're, we're building. We're, we're building stones. We're bricks being laid to make this magnificent kingdom called Zion, which is God's kingdom here on earth. God has given us the privilege of revealing to this world what heaven will look like one day. Now, we don't do a very good job sometimes, but this is still our goal. You see, learn what Zion looks like. Learn what the kingdom of God looks like because this is what the Beatitudes are. This is actually what the entire Sermon on the Mount is. It is the attributes of kingdom citizens. It is the attributes of Jesus' kingdom. And so us, as a holy priesthood, a a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, it is our job to hunger and thirst after what it's supposed to be like. We look at God's word and we don't just say, oh, that's pretty cool. A lot of the times we window shop with Christianity and God's promises. You ever window shop? You ever look? You ever look at things in the window and you're like, oh, that looks so good on me? You know, you ever go on like on, on websites or shoe websites or clothing websites and you'd be like, man, wow, I would look gorgeous in that, <laughs> right? We, we window shop a lot, especially in American society. And I feel like a lot of the times we window shop with God's promises. We say, man, that's, that's a really good promise. And then we don't do anything. God says, I promise you will be blessed if you do this. 
I promise those around you, their lives will be mended if you do this. I promise that blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I promise you guys that you'll be happy. I promise you guys. But you guys, you know, you, you, we, we look, myself included, I, I look, I'm like, wow, that's really nice. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's pretty cool for those people who are. Don't window shop with Christianity. Don't window shop with God's promises. Hunger and thirst for God and the things of God. And he will fill you with his Holy Spirit. What is the goal of Christianity? What is the point? Why are we here? We're here to get equipped with God's word to learn about him. To learn about what the kingdom looks like. What does a holy nation look like? What does Zion look like? We got to learn. We got to make sure that we know this. That's why we read our Bible. What, What does Zion look like? What does God's society look like? We recognize, oh, that's what it would look like in my relationship with this person. That's what it would look like in my business area. That's what it would look like in my office. That's what it looks like in my marriage. That's what it looks like when I'm being a parent. That's what it looks like when I'm seeking a wife or a husband. That's what it looks like. That's what God's perfect kingdom looks like. So now it's time to get busy. Now it is time for me to go out and step out in faith and say, okay, let's do this. It's time for God's kingdom to come here on earth. You don't wait. Don't window shop with God's promises. Don't say, wow, that, that's really cool of God to say that. Take advantage. God says, if you do this, I will bless you. Amen? I'm going to ask the worship team to get up here, and we'll close with prayer. Here we have communion up here. We take communion every Sunday night. Not as it, it is, it's a sacrament and it's a tradition, church tradition, but we don't do it out of the sake of tradition. We do it because it is remembering the gospel. And, and, and honestly, it helps me. And, and that's, I think this is mostly why I have communion up here every, every Sunday night, because it helps me because a lot of times I will sing and I will worship and not really think about Jesus. A lot of times I'll just sing and I'll, I'll just say, I'll window shop even with worship. I'll be like, what a great song. What communion does, and, and you don't have to take it, this is, this is just if it helps you. Jesus says, take this and remember, this is my body broken for the remission of sins. I was crucified for you. And this is my blood shed for you. And I've often said this blood, he, he says to his disciples when he, the first communion, and he extends that cup, the cup of the cov- new covenant. And he says, this is my covenant, take and drink of it. And we see here in this moment when he is saying, drink of my covenant, he is saying this, will you marry me? He says, will you marry me? And this is odd for some of us guys to think about Jesus proposing to us, but he's saying, my engagement ring is the blood. Marry me. I want to be with you. I want to pour my life into you. I want to have a relationship with you. And I want to bring you back to my house in God's kingdom. And we're going to party and we're going to have an amazing time. Will you marry me? And when we drink of that cup, when we say, I do, is when we drink of that blood. To remember that Christ proposed to us via the cross. He said, Lord, he said, guys, I'm Lord. I want you. I don't need you, but I desire you. I want you. And so maybe there's some of you tonight who are like, man, I want Christ because he wants me. 
And, 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 and if that's you, if, if you're going through struggles, if, if you're just like, I don't know what the kingdom of God looks like. I don't know if even God wants me to be a citizen of, a king, of his kingdom. I've done too much bad things in my life. What I want you to do tonight as we worship, I want you to ask God, Lord, can I be a part of your kingdom? God, can I be a part of this holy priesthood? Can I be a part of Zion? Can I be a part of the restoration of this entire universe? Isn't it weird that us as individuals can be a part of a cosmic restoration of this entire world? A lot of the times we think of ourselves as insignificant, but God says, I chose you before I laid the entire world, world's foundation. He had you in mind before this entire world was created. And if you want to receive that tonight, if you maybe have not received Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not said, I recognize that Jesus died for me so I can live a life on this earth that is more radical than I can ever imagine, then what I want you to do tonight is pray and take communion and say, Lord, I do, because he's proposed to you tonight. God's proposed to you. All you have to do is say, I do. If some of you are going through struggles and hardships in your life right now, life has just gotten sucky. We want to pray for you. I'm going to have Wilson over there, and I'm going to have Naomi over there. If you want prayer tonight, seek prayer. But more so, let's worship God with an amazing sense of gratitude tonight. Amen? We are kingdom citizens, we are soldiers for God, and worship via song is our battle cry. This is us declaring victory in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Lord, we love you. God, we praise you for all that you are. And tonight, I pray that we would worship you unhinged. God, that we wouldn't worry about anything, but we would hunger tonight and thirst tonight for righteousness. I pray for the broken people in this room tonight. Life has just gotten heavy. You want to alleviate that. You say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I pray that they would seek rest tonight via prayer, via worship, via communion. Do a dramatic work tonight, Lord. May we pray as desperate people for you. May we hunger and thirst for righteousness. You are so good. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.